Hello, my name is Thomas Adams, and you are listening to Tag Your Ed. This is a podcast of interviews on a variety of subjects that I feel need a voice in furthering our collective knowledge. But first, a little bit about me. I am from a small farming community in Northeast Iowa, a town called Monticello. I am the youngest in a family of four, the only boy with three older sisters. My mother just turned 90, and my father has been deceased for almost 30 years. I have a degree in political science and religion from a college in Northern Iowa and a Master of Divinity from an Episcopal Seminary near Milwaukee. However, I was not ordained, so no need to refer to me as father. I've had a variety of interesting jobs, some fun, some not so fun, but all taking me on a spiritual journey. I love to bake. I worship any Martha Stewart cookbook, and her baking handbook cookbook is my personal Bible. My spirit animal is a Shih Tzu, which I believe to be magical, spiritual, and more human than a canine creature. I love architecture, design, and the Floridian restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. These conversations are necessary, especially now, because time may be running out to have them. These are the hard conversations, those topics that can cause uneasiness, fear, animosity. It is my hope that these podcasts give the listener permission to engage in the hard conversation. Knowledge is the only way out. I created this podcast from conversations with friends over the years that have taught me how to look at life differently. To challenge and permit me to be a free thinker, I hope these podcasts will do the same for you. This is my first recording, and I know that it will improve with practice. There are a lot of ahs and you knows in it, but hopefully practice makes perfect. The first conversation is with a gentleman who I've been friends with for several years, and we have engaged in a number of conversations, and this is the first of the hard conversation. Now, to give you an idea of where this idea for the hard conversation came from, in my previous position in philanthropy, we were funding a number of research projects around race and funding issues surrounding race and we were often challenged as funders to have the hard conversation around race. However, we never quite ever had that hard conversation, basically because no one knew what to say or how to say it. I think sometimes people are afraid to have conversations about race because they think they'll be perceived to be racist or ignorant or something else, and it makes people feel uncomfortable and a little scared. But I'm hoping that through these podcasts that I have, that people will be encouraged to talk more openly about race. Um, It sort of flows and ebbs in America. We hear a lot about race. There's a lot of conversation about race. And then it all sort of goes away, and um, and then it comes out when something catastrophic usually occurs. So uh, that's a brief introduction to what we'll be talking about. So today we're talking about the hard conversation. I have a guest with me today. His name is Stacy Buckley. I've known Stacy for about five, six years now, and um, I wanted him to be 
the first person that I interviewed basically because um, he said yes for one thing and uh, second of all um, the conversations that we will have are based off conversations that we had when we traveled together a few years back and had these robust conversations and I I really wondered if other people on the planet were having those same conversations and I don't think they were and if they are great then I'd like to hear from you so we're going to start the conversation today and um, just uh, we'll, we'll let Stacy introduce himself if he'd like so Stacy if you'd like to say anything about yourself or not <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Stacy Buckley. I'm a proud uh, spiritualist, um, son of true son of God, uh, born in St. Louis, Missouri, to a wonderful set of parents, Daniel and June Buckley. Um, I was raised in a very traditional uh, home, a middle upper middle class uh, family, the West End neighborhood of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, was again uh, wonderful parents who taught uh, me and my siblings uh, a very strong and prideful set of values uh, steeped in uh, what most people would consider uh, traditional Christian beliefs um, and there are things that happened throughout my life as my mind began to wake up and I become, you know, started to mature um, that made me go on, uh, started me on my path, lifelong journey uh, to spiritual enlightenment. And uh, I think that's why I'm here. I'm a person who has very uh, strong values, a strong belief system. Uh, I'm very uh, upfront and forward uh, with uh, the things that I say. Um, but I, I think everybody should be. Uh, honesty is always the best policy. That was one of my father's golden rules and uh, yeah here we go I've, I've done I've spent the majority of I'm 56 years old now uh, starting at the age of about 24 25 I really began this journey um, to find out my relationship with uh, the creator and how I fit into into our world and I think one of my uh, tasks uh, for being here on this planet is to uh, spread a bit of enlightenment uh, to the people that I touch. So if I can do that, then uh, yeah, that's why I'm alive. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks for all of that. And I think that's something that we both have somewhat in common is that we're both on spiritual journeys. And, um, and so... Uh, when we talk about some of the conversation we're about to have... Um, you'll hear more about Stacy's journey and how it it guides his life. So, so let's start out by um, just what what you might think about what the hard conversation means to you. Um, does it mean anything? Do you think? Um, what do you think if it's is the vehicle or, or how to have people talk about difficult subjects like race? 
maybe the maybe the hard conversation is not the right way to say it. Uh, well, I don't necessarily think that it's as a conversation, so that's maybe not the, the proper term, even though that's like uh, one of the more universal and PC uh, terms that you, that you hear uh, in the public and uh, the internet fear, whatever you want to call it. Um, the issues that we're dealing with, um, particularly here in the United States, is a multifaceted uh, issue. So it's going to mean something different to uh, everybody. Uh, of course, everybody has their own opinions. And um, so the values of the subject uh, will probably vary from person to person that you talk to. So I don't think it's a particular conversation that needs to happen, but uh, a, a myriad of a plethora of conversations that one needs to have to uh, make some type of progress if progress is what's being sought. So having heard that, then what what would you think that first conversation would be about? Uh, well, the first, because again, we're talking about, if you talk about, I like to look at subjects as like a coin. So there's, there's always going to be two identifiable sides to a coin um, that make up one whole coin. So I think uh, that some form of acceptance needs to be the first topic uh, of, a, of any type of any type of conversation particularly when you're talking to people who might not be of like mind okay so given then people that want to be engaged in this has to come to the table with an open mind and be willing to accept whatever well i mean if you're going to have a but if you don't have a conversation a meaningful conversation Everybody can't be of like mind. Again, what we're trying to uh, achieve, I think, is you're going to have to come and have conversations with people who whose opinions vary, uh, because again, that's how again that's where acceptance comes in. That when you can present facts, um, then I think you open the door to acceptance. And when you're always talking about uh, maybe a specific subject uh, that might lead you into a special interest or something like that, then you lose the value of that conversation. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So the first place is really just a safe place for people to come and just talk and have and be willing to hear. Right. Well, first whatever. of all, you have, you have to be willing to come to the table and want to have a conversation. Yeah. Okay. You're not going to, you know, some people just aren't open-minded enough to even want to have a conversation uh, even though our very existence in this in this country is at risk so do you think that um, do you think really hard conversations are happening I think they're happening but only only on a very small scale I mean we have to realize there are you know 320 million people in this country so 
yeah. you know, and it's a very large country. So, you know, it's just, you know, small handfuls of people are having these conversations in various pockets around the, the country. Uh, that's going to take a long time for any type of real message to get out. That's a good point. Um, t- can you talk about, I know, um, since I, since we've been friends for a while, I know that you grew up in a neighborhood you know, in, here in St. Louis, and it was the, the, what's considered the West End. Um, do you, has race and or racism, I guess, have, has it always affected you, even when you were small, when you were a young boy? Uh, yeah, um, uh, so I'm the youngest of eight children, and so my mother was 43 years old when I was born, and my father was 47 years old, so they're a lot older than me, uh, and I have brothers and sisters who are a lot older than me, so as a child, I was exposed to a lot of uh, lessons, tough lessons, you know, that kind of tough love kind of thing at, at an early age, and uh being that, you know, the bulk of my childhood extends from the late 60s to the mid-70s, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there was a lot of things going on. Uh, I think that uh, my brother who passed when I was 15 years old, I think even back then his vision was that my little brother needs to learn these type of things. Also, uh, one of my uh, moon goddesses, our oldest sister Jackie, um, several uh her boyfriend at the time or the the male figure for her children that she was dealing with also felt that way he's uh if anybody uh knows uh mr robert ware here in st louis uh you know that uh he's been a dedicated uh activist for a long period of time and he's also one of the people who uh helped introduce me to alternative thinking uh well the black panther party uh Pan-Africanism and things like that. So you mentioned Robert Ware, is that correct? Correct. Can you tell me a little bit more about him? Uh, Robert Ware uh, has worked for uh, organizations like the Urban League and other organizations, and uh, he's he's a grassroots guy. Uh, You know, you go down to the old neighborhood downtown, you can probably still find him walking around, uh, meeting and greeting with people. He's he's just that kind of guy. not a guy who's ever, I don't think, uh, sought attention or fame for what he was doing. It was just, um, he, uh, the ability or his ability or desire to reach people, I think, is what drives him. So he was the one that inspired you to to <laughs> try to figure out... Well, you have to think that, uh, again, I was brought up in this very traditional Okay. home and so people of, of age will remember the uh the distinct lines that our society draw or drew between martin luther king and malcolm x so if you were a good thinking black person you were god-fearing black person then you were on martin luther king's side and if you were a militant uh n-word then you followed malcolm x or, you know or you were involved with the black panther party these type of things uh, unfortunately, so many of us didn't understand or, you know, we come from these demographic backgrounds. My father's uh, ancestry came off of a cotton plantation in central Arkansas, whereas my mother's family uh, is a mixture of various cultures, uh, 
uh, African American, uh, French, and Native American. And so uh, they lived a, a different lifestyle. A lot of her relatives uh, were members of the Blue Vein Society, which is basically a society that uh, dictated their their social status because their melanated skin was so light that you could see the blue veins under their skin. Interesting. So they were uh, afforded a lot of uh, tidbits and luxuries that uh, darker skinned people weren't afforded. Um, my mother's aunt um, lived in Chicago. She was a secretary in Chicago, but uh, lived right off the uh, was now known as uh, Millionaire's Mile or Magnificent Mile, whatever it's called in Chicago. Uh, so a single black secretary back then lived in a beautiful brownstone apartment uh, in Chicago. <laughs> Come to find out, uh, the person Stacy that I'm, uh, I'm the namesake of was. Um, uh, a red-haired Irishman who happened to be an associate of Al Capone. Wow. So, so you had these varying social statuses and things going on in my in my household all trying to be corralled into what was considered you know, PC back then, politically correct back then, and not trying to rock the boat. You know, uh, we had pictures of Martin Luther King in my house, picture of white Jesus, uh, those type of things, you know. <laughs> the fact that we lived uh, in the West End neighborhood in a, a large five-bedroom, three-story house was because the city had undergone white flight. So many of the upper-middle-class white people had moved out of St. Louis and on to places like Chesterfield and, uh, you know, who do... St. Peter's, wherever, wherever, they left the city and, and left these properties open um, for uh, able-bodied black people to move into that area. So, so when you were um, when you when you were exposed to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X as a, as a child, you were a small child then, correct? Uh, yeah, I was I was coming along, but it, uh, to to get to the, one of the the hardcore part of what you asked me was it. Racism uh, affect me as a small child. The first time that I was called a nigger, I was eight years old and was uh, stopped by two white police officers while I was walking through the West End neighborhood, and they just refused to believe that my parents owned a home in that area. What happened to you? Were you obviously were you terrified? Did you? What were you thinking? You know, you... Um, I, I, again, how you, your mind gets trained into certain things. So, you know, that's why I love my family so much. Cause I have these older brothers and sisters who had these conversations with me as as a very small child. Uh, so, well, part of me was like scared to death, particularly after uh, the encounter, but. Uh, you know, during the encounter, again, I remember what my brothers had, had taught me. So when they, you know, they were 
hollering at me. <laughs> my my response was, you know, it, I gave him my name, my address, my phone number, told him who my parents were and why I happened to be walking through the neighborhood. But after that, I never told anybody about that situation for for years because I was afraid that I I had done something wrong. Oh. Because again, these white police officers had had stopped me and and treated me in such a way. I think that's still happening today. Yep, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Unfortunately, sometimes you know now, <laughs> you know if you, you know I was eight years old, you know at at that particular point. Now you see what uh, uh, I think Philando Castillo was like. 25, 26, when he was executed in the driver's seat of his car in front of his wife and daughter. Yeah. So you were exposed to these different philosophies growing up. And so as you got older, which one of them, if any of them, really spoke to you that you, or did you just keep an open mind and take bits and pieces of everything to help formulate what you believe to be your spiritual path and how you as a as a black man would relate to the world or to St. Louis or wherever you may have landed um, I think I had a lot of thoughts I think a lot of things were uh, heavy on my mind for a long time I was lucky enough though uh, my last two years of high school to take journalism and publications classes. And um, Mr. Campbell, uh, this gentleman that taught that class, um, back in those days was probably um, classified as a hippie. Uh, you know, he had, he had long hair and a beard, you know. And, uh, <laughs> we didn't have anyone like that on yeah, the he, farm. Yeah, he, so he, he, was, he was always... We only saw people like that on TV. So. He was always uh, uh, against the machine, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, anything that was status quo was a bunch of BS to him. And uh, he pointed out facts. And uh, he taught me with, about journalism and publication. So he taught me how the media you know, uh, writes uh, stories in the newspaper and stories for television and stuff like that and how uh, it gets edited and to basically to make a specific point or it could be made to make a specific point about a given subject. Uh, so those that was one of the first things that really started me into uh, being a free thinker. And so if you, if you Google that term, um, uh, a free thinker is basically uh, a heretic or uh, somebody who, uh, you know, goes against the grain on a, a lot of things, particularly uh, popular belief. Well, you have to remember that a lot of the early Christian um, writers and uh, philosophers were found to be heretics and then later canonized as saints. So you just never really know where... <laughs> I'll use your which side of the coin. Right. I'll use your illustration. Right. Earlier. I'm never really sure what that means. Like right. you could be, you know, all the disciples were martyred, but now they're all saints. So you know, go figure. Um, okay, so you graduated from high school, and then um, where did your journey lead you next? Where did you? Uh, my journey luckily took me to the United States Marine Corps. 
And so it was while I was in the Marine Corps. Um, well, let me backtrack just a bit to give you to set the stage for this. When probably about the time I met Mr. Campbell, I was at our church, uh, St. Philip's Lutheran Church, which happened to be. Uh, it's down the street from Sumner High School, the first high school for African Americans west of the Mississippi River, and also next door uh, to the Annie Malone's Children's Home, one of the first black orphanages west of the Mississippi. Um, and um, we happen to have a black pastor. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, we have to have a white pastor. And. Uh, one day, I'm, we're at church with my, with my parents, and we're about to kneel down to say the Lord's Prayer. And I look next to me, my mother and my father, and all these other beautiful, um, positive black people. Um, there were the, the head of the St. Louis Board of Education was a member there. Uh, uh, Dr. Emery, uh, there's a doctor, well-known doctor, uh, uh, and his wife uh, was a lawyer. Uh, so, I mean, again, a plethora of well-meaning, positive uh, members of society that just happened to be black, and they're, we're, we're kneeling uh, to a white man to to ask for our forgiveness or to get our forgiveness to say a prayer to ask him to give us our forgiveness and I couldn't fathom knowing my father I'd see my father throw up blood brush his teeth and go to work for eight ten hours a day okay so a, a man who loved his family and would live his life in such a way has to kneel in, in front of a white man to get his blessings from God, I, I couldn't. It's just it was something that was just wrong with that at that particular point in my mind. I, I I couldn't wrap my head around that. And not only my father, but again, Mr. McElroy, his wife, and Mr. Johnson, who were running the, the public schools at that time. That this, it was just something wrong with. It. <laughs> uh, fast forward to um, my first year in the, in the Marine Corps in San Diego. And they had a tour of Egyptian uh, iniquities, and that was the, the first time that I I saw uh, the burial mass of King Tut or uh, Ak Amen. And I'm I'm looking at the, this mask, and it looked like my brother Edward. It looked like it had been cast from my brother Edward's face, and so I automatically knew that that's a black man. You know, that's not. You know, that's not an Asian. <laughs> that person's not Asian. Why? <laughs> He's not white. <laughs> uh, that's not a black olive. man. Not okay? olive. Not you Asian. Know? Right. Not. Yeah. I mean, you you can superpose that face. Just about to to any black man in in America right now, you know, he, he you know he had a goatee, wore earrings, uh, you know, had, you know, big nostrils in his nose, deep set eyes, high cheekbones, you know, he, he was it was obviously that was a black person, and so that really that really started me to uh, start investigating 
uh, various things. And that, again, that started to be a journey. The Marine Corps sent me to uh, Southeast Asia. You know, so when you go to like Japan and Thailand or uh, in Indonesia, you, you see these giant Buddha statues with their hair and like twists and locks. You know, and a, and a lot of them were, are made out of a black material. Uh, so yeah, that, that's something that's symbolic to it. You think about art and how artists express themselves. That's again, that's something that lets you know that they did that for a particular reason. You know, I mean, there's tons of ivory and things like that. You know, that come from that part of the world, white jade. They could have been white or yellow, but they were black. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the facial features of these uh, these deities, uh, it just kind of struck me as like, you know, I'm, again, we're not somebody's not telling the truth uh, about certain things. You know how belief systems are brought about, and who certain people are in history. And again, so again, you, we're stuck in this position now where we're, again we're letting uh, people tell us our history and not necessarily uh, doing investigations ourselves to find out. One of the first things my brother told me, I once asked my older brother Richard how he could be a Catholic when uh, a Catholic uh, basically uh, denounced uh, homosexuality and my brother happens to be gay. He he told me that the Bible is something that you have to read for yourself and interpret yourself. Which again led me to uh, research King James and um, why he had the Bible converted to English and things like that. And so you know that's another story. But that again that's started, another hard conversation. <laughs> started this whole that's spiritual be, that, journey. That of, conversation will be kind of in thirty thousand different pieces. Right. So um, yeah, that kind of started me on that and that old thing. Uh, started with Mr. Campbell, and then again seeing. The, the burial mask or the, the, the death mask of, uh, of uh, Anka Men or King Tut, however you want to say his name, uh, that, what, that started that. What really is interesting, I've heard this some of the story, but to hear it sort of all in context now, what's really interesting is that I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you are... Um, you had this horrific experience as an eight-year-old child being called a nigger by two white police officers. And then from there... Who told me that if they caught me over there again, they would hang me from the streetlight. Oh, dear God. So it does get worse. And so um, so you have this now unbelievably horrific, almost life-changing... That's definitely life-changing. ...event happened to you. And... And then you have Mr. Campbell, who's the, is he the hippie, right? Yes. He was yeah. the hippie. The hippie Journalism which, which publication. I would, have, I, mean, I would have killed for a hippie at Monticello Community <laughs> High School. But I had to go to an overpriced private school to find Dr. English, and he used to smoke. We, we smoked cigarettes in class, and we thought we were so terrible then. And so, um, but, so he, you met him, and he helped you expand your mind and open your mind to... Really, just things. to how uh, how one if you don't control your thoughts, if you don't know yourself, and you don't control your thoughts, you can be easily manipulated. 
Okay. He, he basically explained to me the, the, the business of media. Okay. Well, that's good because, you know, I'm thinking you've had these horrific experiences, but you had this incredibly family, this cluster of family around you that was telling you and guiding you and helping you and challenging you. And, and I'm thinking just in terms of my own um, experience, I think a lot of time and you, you've said this just now, is that I think a lot of time when you're raised in a traditional Christian home, I was raised in a Lutheran home, this is what we believed and this is what you believed in and you that's, that's just the way it was. And I, you know, I later went to school and I got a degree in religion, I got a master's in divinity, which is really not worth anything, but anyway... Um, you get it to get ordained, but the um, but I I now this the, you know I got my degree forty years ago and um, and I look back at it's just been in the last probably twenty years where I've really dismantled what I was brainwashed to believe in. Right, right. You know, it's um, because if you you know like some of my friends are really big Catholics. And then, but they believe in reincarnation. Well, that doesn't quite fit. <laughs> but you know, but it, it you does. Go to communion, you forgive your sins, you die, right. and you go to heaven. That's straight on right. Catholicism and Christianity. And so, right. I the, think those people though might have fallen into some knowledge of Freemasonry, though, because when you. Um, So they, they want to fall on both sides. I mean, the actually, like reincarnation and things like that. That's a that's an African thing. That's a, a spiritual belief, you know, uh, steeped in, in many African cultures, uh, most notably that of the, the ancient Kemites or ancient Egyptians. We'll get to that. Yeah, thing. we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's really. It's just really interesting because you were sort of enlightened at an earlier age, and I think a lot of people are never enlightened because they never give themselves the opportunity to really expand their what they really believe in. Because it's, you know, I'm not saying that anything's bad about it. It's just that if you believe in a certain thing, then you never really open your mind up to whatever what else could be out there. Right. And, and to say uh, this, I don't want to offend anybody, but to say... This, that's one of the benefits of white privilege is that these these you know hardcore Christian beliefs are very um, uh, it's comforting and and convenient convenient was the word I was looking for it's very convenient you know because things are, are actually going your way you know God looks like you God really loves you. Look you at that big ass house and that big ass car and that big ass. Right. God yeah, really when, loves when everything's you. working for you, then yeah, you, you, it's, it's easy for well, you, and, you know, to, we, to fall we've into We've had that. to the listening audience. This is to be only fair to you, Stacy and I have had these really amazing conversations, and then I don't. I, I like. I'm like, oh gee, I just had this really great conversation. I want to share it with the world, and this is how naive I am. And when I do that, not everybody in the world is really so gun ho to really share with me and some of my my excuse me newfound knowledge of of um, 
how to shake up or how Christianity doesn't really stand up and whatever. People get offended by it. People are like, they get scared. They don't want to think about that. And it's just really interesting that, um, you know, even when I was in seminary, I remember my classmates and we were talking about the, um, the Immaculate Conception, which was, you know, Jesus was born without sin and, and then, um, and, but some people think it was that Mary was, it's, you know, we're so screwed up and what we believe right, in exactly. the Bible, which is really sad. And I can say that because I'm sort of a baby scholar of this, of the, of the, of the Bible. But, you know, you just have to remember Jesus spoke Aramaic. The first gospel was written 70 years after his death. So, what do we really know? Is the truth or not? And I, you know, I mean, I, I was I was raised Lutheran. I went to an Episcopal seminary, and um, and for myself, I'll just say I can remember we had to go. We had um, daily Eucharist, and you know, I went month. I went week after day after day after day, and didn't believe in anything. So you know, repetition doesn't always win. Um, so you you started to open your mind to, you know, I think probably one of the most powerful stories you've ever said to me, you told me, I'll dip back into that, is when you said a white man, that my parents and all these incredible, powerful men and women and, and families that you knew in your neighborhood were kneeling down in front of a white man and that imagery is so strong and saying, begging, you know, and, and well, not begging, but asking for forgiveness that the minister, the priest, the white minister or priest then can absolve their sins um, really resonates with me on a whole different level about how the church has accepted and then sort of promotes ways which just builds more race in the community. So it's all this other, I'm not really making myself very clear. but No, it's you, just, you are, because it, it, it actually uh, creates a lot of division uh, along certain lines because of um, uh, some of the um, disingenuous information that gets passed on or the propaganda that gets passed on. Well, people will argue and say, well, it's really God coming through the vessel of the man and that's forgiving your sins. But then the other flip side is then you can ask God on your on your own to forgive your sins if you're going to go that route. So that, Right, exactly. That, and that was what one of the things I just could not understand is why why couldn't we you know, anybody, not just my parents and, you know, these other people. Why couldn't anybody just talk to God? If God created us all, we're all we, then we should all have a purpose. We should all be here for a reason. Why can't we just talk to God? So when you were in high school, I know, I know, it seems like, it's like we've created quite the show just to talk to God. And so, um, and don't worry about offending anyone on this podcast because I'm sure I've already offended probably most of my classmates in seminary. And so, who most went on to get ordained. <laughs> I did not. Um, so, just so you, this, this was happening in high school, and then 
Did you go to the Marines when you got out of high school, or were you around for a little while before you enlisted? Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't even go to my high school graduation. By the time they were graduating, I had already graduated, you know, prior to in January. So by the time yeah, graduation came around, I was already in Marine Corps boot camp. And so, and, and so you're in, you, you, after boot camp, you were played, you were sent to the Philippines, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. So you were in the Philippines and you were there for two years. Correct. Or 18 months. 18 months. Okay. So, um, so tell me about that experience in terms of how that played to issues of race. And then also just to, as a human being, um, I think, and, and also, where where in this time frame did you really start moving away from what you were taught as a child or by your parents or your traditional Lutheran heritage, whatever, and really more so go further into what you were trying to believe a, a purpose for yourself or purpose of life was be? But I'd be interested to hear about... Um, about the Philippines on a number of levels, and right. I'll, I'll be honest with you, because um, I grew up in peacetime, and so when I when I well, when I was a child, I was born in, born in 1957. That makes me 62. I'll just do the math for all of you. Um, and the Vietnam War was around, and we were in a small town in Iowa, and we would watch the TV every night. And all I knew is that people came back from the Vietnam War in pieces. You know, right. they came back in coffins and they came back in pieces. And um, and I never knew what a casualty was. And I finally asked my mom, I said, what's a casualty? And she said, a casualty is someone who has died. And that's how it was always reported. And then finally, I guess in the early 70s, the Vietnam War was finally stopped. Right. And... Um, and all of that, but it went on for a very long time. It was a very long war, Great. and um, but then it stopped, and then we were in peacetime. And so I think for people that haven't been in a war, and now we've been in wars all the time, but people don't really think about them very much. But what was so? You went to the Philippines. So were you? Were, were you in peacetime, or were we in war, or what was going on? Uh, well, first of all, we need to understand that, uh, that this country is never at peace. Okay, we're, we're always at war. So when I, when I went to the Philippines, uh, when we first got there, the Philippines was under martial law. And there was an organization, uh, please forgive me, I can't remember the name, but I believe it was, uh, the Republicans People's Army. Uh, now I think they're called Al-Shabaab. Uh, in, in the Philippines, uh, they are uh, a left-wing group. Um, and back then, in the in the 80s, I don't think that they're necessarily... Now Al-Shabaab is uh, basically viewed as a militant Arab uh, group. I don't think it necessarily had to do with uh, Arab or Christian back then. These were people who were fighting for their freedom. Uh, under uh, an oppressive power. They, they were under uh, a tyrant. I mean, plain and simple, uh, Ferdinand Marcos uh, was was a tyrant. 
uh, he and the, the nine governors of the Philippines controlled everything. And if you remember when uh, they were removed from power, uh, he and his wife, their, their personal wealth was almost to the dollar of the Philippine national debt. That's how bad things were there. Uh, so it it wasn't a, a, a peacetime, so to speak. Technically, uh, how people think. I mean, we were we weren't at war, but we were there to uh, enforce a certain agenda. Uh, again, this again was something that that really affected me because I didn't understand uh, why. Uh, but then things started as I the longer that I stayed there. I began to understand why I began to understand the United States policy, and I began to understand um, classism and, and things like that. Um, mm. uh, it, it was funny to me that you know here I was, you know, twelve, thirteen miles, thousand miles away from home, and uh, dark-skinned people were still referred to as the N-word. So the, the native people that lived in, in the rural areas, the dark-skinned native people there, were referred to as Negritos, which is just a, Sp a Spanish word for black people. Hmm. Or, <laughs> or nigger. You know, however you want to say that. You know, think about it, that's how they were being treated. We're talking about <laughs> race, so we got to say the right. word. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. so uh, that, that kind of, it just really, it, it struck me. And so these are, it was my experience in the Philippines that got me thinking about Africa because I would see these native people, uh, the people that lived in the rainforest and stuff like that. They were a very wonderful, beautiful people uh, who were very happy in what they, in their lifestyle. So, I mean, you, you um, brought up the, you know, 60s and 70s experience. When, when we grew up, you know, back in those days, you know, you know, people in in Asia, in these Asian countries, were we looked at uh, always being poor, you know, third world type people, and there was something wrong with them. You know, they needed us to help them, and these in these type of situations. So, uh, one of the first things that when I got there, I'm looking around for all these starving babies and <laughs> disenfranchised people, and um, I, I'm not seeing these people. You know, uh, even out in the jungle. The Negritos that lived out in the jungle, they had these vast bamboo forests and stuff like that. So all of their their shelters and stuff like that, down to the the dishes that they eat off of, the utensils that they eat, they're all made out of bamboo. Uh, so I mean, they would move around, you know, the rainforest seasonally, and you know, they'd have a village in one place, and they would just abandon that and move on to someplace else, and they could build a, a whole other village in a day. Wow. With, with absolutely no problem. You know, I watched them, um, a typhoon uh, hit the island uh, about six months after I got there. And literally, we were, you know, I was remembering this village that was down close to the, to the shore. You know, fishing is, is a big thing over there and also cultivating pearls. It's a, it's a big industry over there. And I'm like, you know, what's going to happen to these people with this massive storm coming well you could where our the marines are were stationed on Suba bay naval station you can see these people moving you know through you know uh, by the, outside of the base from 
they're from the coastal low ground up into the mountains. And the, the typhoon came, washed all of their stuff away, destroyed the village and the whole nine yards. And once it passed, you could see them coming back. And within a couple of days' time, they had all their stuff built back, and they were up and running, doing their fishing and, and, and pearl harvesting and, and whatever. Uh, so again, talking about being blessed and realizing what your blessings are, and just being happy with what your blessings are and your space in the world. That was a, a eye-opening experience to see these people, these people do that. And they weren't, even though they realized why the Marines were there, they weren't bitter toward us. You know, they, they, you know, they party with us in the cities. Uh, in, in our off times, uh, they, they invited us uh, to the secluded beach one day for one of their holidays and they you know barbecue dug a big pit in the sand and barbecued a pig and we hung out there for a couple of days <laughs> you know there was no animosity or anything like that these people again their spiritual uh beings are again you know, are so beautiful and undisturbed that they wouldn't allow that type of hate or anything to enter their their their, their realm so we, you've told me stories about when you were in the Philippines, and I'll just bring one, uh, one up, or not really a story, but it must have been incredibly difficult for you to be there because, from what I understand, not all from you, but from what I've read, is that we were there, the U.S. was there basically to protect Marcos. Ferdinand Marcos, correct. And um, and that meant probably doing things that didn't necessarily make you proud as a Marine or as an American or as a man. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, one of my heroes growing up was uh, was Muhammad Ali, and Muhammad Ali refused induction or draft status to go to Vietnam, and he said, "You, you know, you're not going to send me overseas uh, to kill people of color who who haven't done anything to me." Um, so, um, toward the end of, of martial law, uh, one of my duties as a security personnel uh, was was to man a gate that was uh, toward the back end of, of Subic Bay and that led out into a, a bush area, I believe it's a reserve area now, uh, and close to the rainforest. Um, a woman come, walked with her baby, baby's probably a year old, you know, under two years old. Uh, she walked with this baby from her village because the baby was sick. And she, she, she comes to the gate and uh, our uh, commanding officer refused her entry onto the base because we're under martial law and you can't come onto the base. Yeah, okay. Well, they let that woman sit outside that gate for three days until her baby died. Okay. Her, her, the baby died and she just got up with her baby and, and walked back out into the jungle. And I, I asked my commanding officer, you know, uh, for, for two days I'm asking my commanding officer, why can't we help this woman? I'm not understanding 
why we can't help this woman. She's right there on the other side of the fence. Can you not just hand her the medicine through the fence? And it, well, that's not what you, you need to do your job, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's not why you're here, you know, you know that whole kind of thing. So when the baby died, uh, again, we're back to him and it's like that. The Marine Corps is supposed to be the few and the proud. We're supposed to be all about honor. Everything that you taught me to this point from boot camp to now was about being honorable. And we just watched this woman, okay, needing our help. The, the village is 20 miles inside the jungle. She walked here with that baby to get our help. And you let her sit there until her baby died. But where, where's the honor in that? And again, he he told me I, I didn't I, I didn't understand the policy, and to which my retort is: No, I understand, I understand what my job is. I need to understand that flag. Oh, the United the flag, the United, the, the United States. States flag. That's that's what's representing us, hanging up on that flagpole. That's what's on my shirt, on my on my arm. That's who, that's who I'm here representing. I'm not here representing Stacey Buckley anymore. I'm here. I'm, representing the United States Marine Corps. And I'm supposed to be a man of honor. Okay? Watching a woman needing her help, needing help with her baby, <laughs> and, think, and not helping her is not just, honorable. Do you think people just wrote that off as a casualty of war, as a way to dismiss it? That's collateral when damage, you, you know, When you tell me that story, it's just it's so horrible for me to hear that. I mean, I just want to cry. It's so sad. Because you say it. You, the story is so vivid the way you explain it. You know, sitting there, through, comes in the, you know, just probably needed penicillin, probably needed something that was, like, easy, that the government had a bazillion... You know, Suba Bay, Na- Bay Naval Station was is closed now, but it was the largest naval station outside the United States. Oh, God. So yeah. there's there's room for uh, an aircraft carrier, uh, a destroyer, a battleship, and, uh, and all its regalia, plus a battalion of, of U.S. Marines. So there. 10,000 this base it was so big enough for 10,000 people. Yeah, you could have given that woman anything. So martial law meant that um, you couldn't you could only assist people that were within the confines of the compound. Correct. Yes, yeah, so the only time that we at that time, the only time that we could um, leave the base was to conduct you know, our these military operations, our assistance to the, the Philippine government, which was basically to patrol the streets. Uh, they had a, a curfew, I think, of like six or seven o'clock in the evening. And so part of our part of our mission, too, was, you know, make sure that the, they were off the street at a particular time. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Why and was so that? There, there are a lot of a lot of those people actually worked on the base. You know, before martial law. Oh. Okay. So, I mean, you have, you know, maybe a thousand of those people had jobs on the base, you know, as cooks and, and whatever. And, uh, yeah, all of that was, was cut off under martial law. So, why did the Philippines, or why did you go into martial law? What was, what, what, what were. Right. Well, 
Marcos enacted martial law because oh, okay. the, the right this this rebel group was trying to overthrow him. Oh, I see. So okay. So he was still the. I get it. Um, how fast did you want to get out of the Marines after that experience? I was done with it. <laughs> When, 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 when I realized that baby was late. dead, this can all be edited right. out. I'm just <laughs> when I realized I just, that baby that, was dead, I was pretty. I was pretty. I was pretty much I'd, done. I would have been court martial, right? But um, uh, I wanted to stay. I wanted to stay because I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to know what was going to happen after martial law was lifted. I wanted to see. Uh, I wanted to be around these uh, these beautiful indigenous people. Uh, so I, I didn't necessarily want to leave. It wasn't until my 18th month uh, duty was, was over that uh, I was pretty much done with the Marine Corps because I was offered an opportunity to change my MOS or my job uh, status at that time. But uh, was I was given uh, three choices of, of what they what they wanted me to do, not what I wanted to do, but what they wanted me to do moving forward. With that. How old were you when you no longer, uh, after that 18 months, when you left the Marine Corps, how old were you? Uh, 22. Wow. It's a lot of living in two years. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it, it was crazy. It was an amazing experience um, that I think uh, I think what would help a lot of uh, young people in this country, particularly young males, both black and white, both from rural areas and urban areas, is, uh, is a two-year stint in the, in the military. Um, under some circumstance. Now, I'm not saying to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> I'm saying maybe like the Coast Guard or something like that to First of all, to, to give you that type of discipline and structure, and then to uh, take you somewhere where you can, again, you can see these things. You're actually forced to see these things because I didn't have any choice of where I was going once I, you know, I joined the Marine Corps. I wasn't given that opportunity. This is where I was assigned. Uh, and thank goodness, it was a, it was a, a wonderful, uh, life-defining. Uh, you, type situation. Was there any kind of race issues with the Marines while being in the Marine? Was race an issue there or not? Um, it, not so much in the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps isn't that big. So it's not like being in the Army or the Navy. There's not a lot of us. There's, you know, uh, so uh, and most jobs in the, in the Marine Corps, particularly at that time, are combat related jobs. So, you know, we're training to fight. We're training to, to keep each other alive. Okay, so there has to be some type of <laughs> yeah. some type of middle ground there. Yeah. Again, that's what again we were saying about having these conversations. I've had plenty of conversation. Uh, one of my best friends in the Marine Corps was from South Dakota, and he had never been an arms an arms length of a black person before he came to boot camp. Well, that was like me. I didn't, you know, I grew up in a white community and I didn't know anyone black until I went to college. Right. So. But on the flip side, too, I had this guy, uh, 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 Dalton, who was um, from Hazelhurst, Georgia, and he was a, a real, you know, Yahoo white supremacist type uh, 
guy who uh, he he didn't like that I was a, a higher rank than he was, and so we we had some uh, we had we had some head knocking conversations. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where he is today. So, um, okay, well, you ca- so you came back um, to the United States and you know had various jobs. So let's talk a little bit about. First of all, I'm going to check the time here. Which we are okay, guys. My fur, I'm a virgin. So, um, so let's. We're not going to carry. We're not going to have our whole conversation today. Okay, so let's we'll, and, and the listeners will know that we'll, we'll break this up um, into into bits and pieces because it's a lot. I mean, quite honestly, I know that if you're listening to this and you just heard that story about the young mother with a child that walked 20 miles to get, you know, an antibiotic, which we as um, you know, as uh, Americans refused because of martial law and watched a baby die is, I think, like enough, <laughs> enough to listen to at one time. But I think the beauty of that profoundly horrific story is that um, is what it does to us to remind us that it is okay to challenge what you were told to believe. Correct. You know, um, that baby is gone and back in heaven or wherever, you know, back in in the universe and peaceful, and the mother is hopefully was able to move on from it or whatever. We will never know. Cases like that, there's just a special place in the universe. Correct. opens up. God God has a vehicle and a way for everybody. Right. And so, um, so anyway, so we're going to, um, talk a little bit more and then we're going to take a break. So do you want to take a break now? We can. Do you want to fill up your, stretch your legs, anything? Okay. Okay. All right. So we'll just continue on. And, um, so you had this, all this stuff going on. So you now back in the United States, you come back to, to St. Louis Mm -hmm. to live. And then, um, where did you tell me about what your spiritual path was then? And when did you really dive into what you, what your core values or what you, what your core beliefs are of your spirituality today? Um, so, well, and, what, 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 that, and what that is. One of the, again, the beautiful things about being, having Mr. Campbell's teachings and understanding of how to read various publications, um, I ran across a, a book overseas in, in a library uh, overseas uh, by uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Yohakinet, who uh, who was a black scholar, um, and his his uh, main kick is the the study of African history and 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 how it relates to to various things. And this this book uh, was basically uh, his his take on. Uh, 
the uh, the Bible, uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and the Book of Enoch. Uh, and so, again, to you, you when, again being a black kid and you're growing up off important knowledge and stuff is important is imparted to you by white people the public school system all that is basically again a, a vehicle for uh, you to learn certain things <laughs> that's true okay so uh, yeah when I, I read the first book uh, uh, by Dr. Ben that started me to want to research uh, African spiritual belief systems um, and so again when you again growing up as a kid in the time that I grew up you used to look at like the Tarzan movies and, uh, and all this other nonsense that was being portrayed on television well when you realize that there's no basically there's no jungles in Africa so you know this idea of you know man eating cannibals and and all this crazy nonsense again it's just something that's basically made up um, when you you look at the outfits and stuff of some of those characters of the black characters their their outfits but they're actually they're taken from the Dogons who are probably the most advanced people that has ever lived on this planet. Um, the Book of the Dead and the Dead Sea Scrolls can talk about uh, the past civilization, but also give you a glimpse, a glimpse into the future. Um, and those are these things. I've always been uh, really uh, taken with history, uh, but there's so, again, you grow up in a certain society, so much of that is just is not true, like images in the Tarzan movies and stuff like that. There, there are no tigers in Africa. Africa's come from Asia. So if you've ever seen a movie with a lion and a tiger in it, that's that's a false narrative. <laughs> it just well, is. we won't even get around the Tarzan. <laughs> But again, the you know, whole Tarzan, right. the, but, and the, the apes, and the apes were like the pygmies. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. The, it, the only yeah. person that was present, you know, Tar Tarzan had his animals, but Tarzan was white, male, and gorgeous. Right. And so, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and he treated yeah. the he treated the animals better than he treated the black people, <laughs> which again goes back to like the 1904 World's Fair here in St. Louis, where they had like human zoos, where they got these rural black people and stuff like that and actually put them in like petting zoos and stuff like that. Oh my God, I never knew that. Yeah. yeah check it out. Check yeah, it out. They have like human I'll zoos. I'll have to go to this. <laughs> I'll have to, I'm going to go to St. Louis History Museum. Go, they used yeah. to have a big thing in the basement about mm -hmm. this. The... Yeah, you can see that. You can oh. see that. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> St. Louis. <laughs> well, you know. We were below the Mason Dixon right. line, so you know. But again, all that again goes back to that. to Mr. Campbell and him teaching me how to understand how information is being brought to me. Okay, you have to understand where the source comes from, and then you have to understand what might be the agenda behind the information that they're bringing you. Do you know if Mr. Campbell's still alive? 
I don't. I don't. Actually, I was thinking about him not too long ago. Was we should try to, to try find to him. Out. Right. You know, I didn't have a hippie in high school. I guess uh, he, he was the, the coolest guy in the world, man. I, uh, you know, there was there were some cool people in um, at Monty High, but you know, right. not as not a hippie. But um, right. So I wrote a, actually wrote an article in the, in the high school newspaper that didn't paint our principal in a very good light. <laughs> Oops. Right. And who was actually the 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 publisher of the of the paper, he or the editor of the paper, he got to, to look at the final copy before before it went to to print and he basically told Mr. Campbell he couldn't he couldn't put it in there. Mr. Campbell told him he would take it out but still uh sent it to the publisher and had it published in the paper. <laughs> We love Mr. Campbell. We're going to go find him. Again, again, that, that is something that really... He could still be alive. Right. He lived a good life. I mean, good people usually live live a good life, you know? Yeah, that's true. I, I don't see why, any reason why he would not, because he was probably a young man back then. You know, I, I doubt if he was, you know, between, probably about between 25 and 30 years old back then. Yeah, I guess he could be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay, so you uh, read this book, and it opened your mind up to... First of all, it opened my mind up to there was actually black scholars. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, a dude with, 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 a, with a, 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 a degree from, from Oxnard. You know? So, yeah. again, <laughs> who knew? Who knew? <laughs> You know, yeah, and see, to me, it was I was the opposite, where everybody was white, everybody, all the, even you know, in seminary, most of the great systematic theologians of the 1930s and 40s were white. Mm-hmm. You know, Tillich and Carbart and the gang, they were all white, and even the people in the Bible, which we will talk about too sometime, were white, because Jesus was white, right? Is Jesus white? And that is, that is the, the biggest <laughs> force in the world. Stacey, what do you think? Do you think, do you think Jesus was white or not? So. Uh, well, so I think you got a whole continent of people who who say the, uh, the opposite. I mean, there's a whole religion of people who say it was opposite. And even Pontius Pilate, again, when you look at science, one of the things that I always try to base my beliefs on or any information that I try to pass on is fact with a scientific fact, something that is actually written down or uh, uh, mentioned in, in various in various terms factually. And one of the things that from Pontius Pilate, you have to remember he was a he was a, a strong man for the Byzantine uh Empire. Uh, he was a government official and actually had uh uh notes or records or whatever. One of the things that again he described Jesus as a Negro Ethiop. Or a black man from Ethiopia. This is what's so frightening about having conversations with you because I like went to school and had all these degrees in religion, and you know so much more of this than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really? I didn't read that, really, because see, you know, we've talked about this, and mm-hmm. and for those of you listening, is that you know, it's it's been really just. Uh, in the past few years, and especially you know, knowing you, it's it's a roller coaster when you're like, you know, you have to remember everyone we traveled together. 
on long distance trips. So when you're in the car with somebody for 12 hours, you talk about a lot of different stuff. <laughs> so, of course. So this is where this all comes from is this amazing conversation. And this is what it's based off of because we would be in the car driving and I would say, we, sh- we should be recording this. I think this is so interesting. So Hopefully, y'all will be thinking the same thing, too. I think so. Well, this has been quite the conversation, and I appreciate your candid responses and fearless honesty. For our listeners, I would remind you to check out other podcasts when they become available. Tag your at 1957 on Instagram. Tag you are it on Facebook. And check out my online bakery store at tagtruffles.com. For those who may be wondering where TAG comes from, it's my monogram, Thomas Adams Glenn, thus TAG. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact me at thomas at tagtruffles.com or through my Instagram and Facebook pages. Also, please respect the opinions you hear on this podcast. You may feel uncomfortable with its content, but just be open to the opportunity of learning and increasing your knowledge. You will never know where it may take you. Remember to listen to the second part of this podcast with my conversation with Stacey Buckley. Thank you and good day.